Good morning. We are going to finish the book of Colossians this morning. We're in uh, Colossians chapter 4. And we had a great time at the marriage conference, by the way. I uh, had the opportunity to make a fool of myself while I was pretending to dance. (laughs) And um, others did as well, so that's fine. Uh, You know who you are. Um, There are some good dancers here, though, so I I was impressed. All right, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 2 this morning, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, and uh, we're reading um, Paul, you know, as we close up, and just as a reminder, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae from a Roman prison during his first imprisonment in Rome. Um, He was imprisoned twice in Rome, and this was during his first imprisonment. He didn't plant the church there in Colossae, uh, but um, he definitely had a heart for them, um, and he wrote this letter to them from, from his chains, the Bible says, in Rome, and so we're going to close it out uh, this morning and um, look at a few key areas as we, as we close the letter. Uh, verse 2, we read, continue earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And we see here right off the bat, Paul being in prison, and he does ask them at the end of the letter to remember his chains, but his first goal here is that the, there would be opportunity to share God's word uh, with those that he's uh, in contact with in the prison. And um, we also get this, you know, we're going to see in verse 5, this contrast between the, the private life of a believer, the prayer life, the, the, the time you spend with the Lord where he's asking them to be, continue earnestly in prayer And then when we look at verse 5 and 6, he's going to talk about how we behave in the public, how we are to share our faith. And so the the private life and then the public life as he's closing out the letter here. And so I want to take a little time to talk about prayer. I think it's an area for me specifically and probably for um, many of us here uh, that we we can improve in. And uh, Pastor Jonathan was talking about it. We are having a prayer service on Wednesday. There's a the shameless plug. Uh, so you, please come out and, and join us for that. And, uh, but it is an area that we can improve in, I think. And um, so I want to look at this. I want to look at a couple of accounts from the scriptures about prayer. Um, first of all, when we see this in verse 2, where Paul's saying, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, the, the phrase that's used here, the earnestly in prayer, speaks of a great effort being steadily applied. And uh, we don't always think of prayer that way as a great effort, you know, because um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, sometimes prayer in my life is applied before I'm going to bed and, and the, the effort ceases as soon as I fall asleep, right? And, but the, this is speaking of actually putting time aside, and even when it's difficult, to power through it, right? Make the effort um, in doing this. And so this is important to God, and it should be important to us to do this steadily through our lives and do this, um, take the effort uh, of applying prayer to our Christian walk. Um, Paul, as you guys remember, when we opened up the letter uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of our love for all the saints. 
And Paul's showing an example here, living out the life, praying for the church in Colossae, even though it wasn't a church he planted, um, he still cared for them deeply and prayed for them. And in Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, and so I'm gonna, we're going to look at a few uh, verses around prayer. Uh, he writes to us, Matthew, uh, inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it would help if I turn this on, huh, Jordan? All right. He writes to us and he says, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, I'm going to read from this. I think a lot of people take this, the first couple of verses and they leave out the rest, but we'll read the, the entire context here. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man... Man, is there among you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fathers in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And uh, some people will, like I said, take the first couple of verses and they'll use this as a, as a like kind of the genie concept, you know, just ask for God and he'll give you anything. Uh, but when you keep reading here, you see the key of it is that God will be giving you good things. And who, who, des- who decides what is good? God does, right? He is good. He is the only one who is good. And he decides what is good. And if you look at this kind of example it gives in the scriptures about a, a father, you know, when his son asks for bread, uh, will he give him a serpent, right? So the son is asking for something good, uh, something he needs to sustain his life. Um, if you look at the contrast of that, what if the son asked for something evil, something that's not good for him? Will the father give it to him just because the son asked? That doesn't make sense, right? So uh, the key there is asking for good things. And so one of, the, one of the purposes of prayer is to increase our understanding of what God calls good and to cultivate our desire in us for what is good. And um, this obviously... Uh, comes with, you know, I, I like what John says in, First uh, John says in his letter, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. So it kind of summarizes what Matthew said into a more concise form. Um, and so we should be seeking after what God desires for us in our lives. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Notice that the beginning there starts with delighting yourself also in the Lord. Um, George Mueller writes, um, which I think is good advice here. He says, prayer is most effective after the inner man has nourished by the meditation of the word of God. And so it kind of follows that same format we see in Psalms here, where it's delighting yourself in the Lord, learning from God what is good, what is God's will, and then following that up with prayer, um, and then it becomes more of a two-way street of communication. God is filling us up, and then we're making our requests known before God. Um, I want to go through two examples in Scripture of prayers, and um, the first one is found in 1 Samuel, and there is a man who, um, his name was Elkanah, Elkanah. And he had two wives, not recommended. That's not what the story's about. <laughs> one of them was named Hannah, and one was named Penina. Um, many of you know Hannah's name, of course. And uh, the Bible says that the uh, year after year that Elkanah and his family would go to Shiloh to worship the Lord. And uh, Hannah was, as you probably are aware of the story, was barren. She had no children. And year after year, she prayed the Lord, prayed to the Lord, and asked for children. And it says that Penina uh, would provoke her and make her miserable because Penina did have children, and uh, she liked to rub it in a little bit. And so we get this prayer from Hannah in First uh, Samuel, uh, chapter one, verse eleven. And I think it it's a little bit telling because there's. Two things going on. Um, one is 
all the times before when Hannah went up year after year to pray, it wasn't God saying no to Hannah uh, to have a child. It was, wasn't the right timing, we know, right? And, um, and so it was a weight thing, but it was also, I believe, God shaping Hannah's heart, Hannah's desires to be aligned with his. And so when we look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll just read this prayer, and Hannah, uh, we read, says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And we see here, finally, year after year, she prayed, but finally, Hannah's will aligned with God's, I think. And now this, this baby that she would have wouldn't be to get back at Panina to say, look, I can have a child too. You know, it wasn't a selfish motivation anymore. It was the motivation was now aligned with God's will, which was to dedicate this child, who we all know the story, would be the, you know, the great prophet Samuel, to get, dedicate him to the Lord so that we, he would grow up and learn about God and be the man that, that we know Samuel to be. Um, so we see this alignment of God's will and Hannah's will, and then God, of course, grants her the, the child. Now, I was um, thinking about this as I was going through, through prayer, and I remember a conversation I had with my, my aunt. Her name's, her name's Patty. And... Uh, when, when I first moved to Colorado, I, I grew up in California. When I was uh, 15, almost 16, we moved to Colorado, and we were trying some different churches. And uh, my aunt was there at this, this church we were trying out, and they were teaching about prayer and asking God for things. And afterwards, I had this conversation with her about, um, and I had a totally uh, unbiblical opinion, so I caveat that now. <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I was very young at the time, so forgive me. But I was saying that, well, God's will is going to take place anyways, regardless of what I pray for. And I understood, like, well, I should pray to align with God's will and that he would change my heart. But I thought, well, God's will is going to take place. So what does it matter if I pray for this or pray for that or pray for healing or pray, for, you know? And we had this conversation, and she had the actual accurate view on this, um, and I didn't, but, um, you know, I was a lot younger and wiser then, of course, and I knew, knew, knew the proper ways back then, but um, so I couldn't be convinced. But the second story, I, wanna, I want you guys to turn with me, so say, um, save your place in Colossians, if you could turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. And we read this incredible account. And of course, when we're talking about prayer, we could go through all kinds of scripture. I wanted to kind of just pull a couple out this morning to talk through, but this one is so direct at that, at that thinking that it, what does it really matter, that it, um, th there's no way to deny it. And so I, I really like it. Um, 2 Kings chapter 20, and I'm going to start uh, at verse 1 here. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And uh, we see a couple of things here. One thing that's very important, this wasn't Isaiah's opinion. <laughs> he said, thus says, saith the Lord, you're going to die. And, uh, you know, we might think of this as, um, you know, you better, better get your will in place. You better get things in order. Of course, he was the king of uh, Israel or king, the king of Judah. And, and um, he had probably many things to get in order to make sure things didn't fall apart when he died, right? And Isaiah is here to tell him from God that he needs to get these things in order uh, because he's about to die. And uh, then we continue reading, verse 2, then he turned his face, speaking of Hezekiah, then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray, 
how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse 4, and it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. It's pretty incredible that um, through prayer, his destiny was actually changed. And uh, what we could say for certain is that this Bible we have here, every, as Jesus said, every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. Every prophecy will be fulfilled. That's a guarantee, right? I mean, we're not going to pray out a prophecy that's written in the Bible, right? Uh, but when we pray, there is destinies that are changed. People's lives are changed through prayer. And uh, this particular account specifically tells me that if Hezekiah had my opinion I did when I was a young man, and said, what does it really matter? God's will is going to take place anyways. Then Hezekiah would have died. And the Messiah would have still came, and all that would have been fine. But Hezekiah's destiny would have been different, right? He wouldn't have had those additional 15 years. And so that's pretty incredible and pretty important to remember that prayer does change things. Um, James chapter uh, 5, verse 16, we read, and you can go back to uh, Colossians. Uh, we read in James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we see there in uh, James that he tells us to pray for one another, um, not just ourselves, but to pray for one another. I heard this story about a, a young woman named Katie that... Um, she was, she was single, she desired to be married, and uh, she often prayed for herself that God would bring her a, a godly husband and uh, that she would be able to, to be married. And she went to church on a Sunday, and the uh, pastor there was teaching about praying for others, and it convicted her. And so she, she uh, thought, you know, this week, instead of praying for myself and getting a husband, I'm going to pray for others. And so on Monday, she started, decided to pray for her mom. And she said, Lord, if you would, please bring my mom a generous, a caring, a loving son-in-law. And if it wouldn't be too much trouble, if you could be tall and handsome, she would really appreciate that. And uh, so it's good to pray for others, especially your mom. So... Katie's a great example of that. No, uh, just, just joking there. But actually, in reality, Jesus gives us a, a really good example. We're not going to turn there and go through it. But if you read John chapter 17, is a prayer from Jesus. And he um, lays out the first part of the prayer. He does pray for himself. And it's good to pray for ourselves. But it's not in a selfish manner. Uh, Jesus prays that he'll glorify God with his life as he's closing out um, his earthly ministry. He's praying that he's going to glorify God with his actions. And then he prays for those disciples or those that are closest to him, his followers that are around him. Uh, we think of, um, you know, John, the beloved, and Peter and James. Those are in his close circle. And, of course, the 12 disciples, um, all those followers, he prays for them. And then he closes out the chapter, and he prays for, for you and me and everybody else that will follow him, his church, throughout history. And uh, Jesus gives us a good example there in, in John about um, it's good to pray for ourselves, but just remember that our, our lives are to glorify God, and so to pray in that manner and, and to pray for those closest to us. God has put specific people in our lives and around us, and it's, I don't think it's a, it's a click to have certain people around us and to be close to certain people. There, there may only be one or two or three or four people that you really bond with and you're close to and you build those really tight relationships. And I think of, uh, you know, like I said, John and Peter and James, you could see that throughout the scriptures. And then um, 
And then not to forget about others. You know, that person you ran into on Sunday and said, I'm going to be praying for you and to, to do it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, sometimes that's the, uh, the, the part that may be laborious, right, is to pray for that missionary you haven't seen in six months or to pray for, um, you know, uh, the, the person you just met or the person at work that you just met or the person that, that you realize is having an issue that you just ran into a week ago, right? And so uh, we need to remember to pray for others as well. Um, okay, so uh, let's continue in Colossians. Uh, we're going to look at verse 5 through 6 here. Walk in wisdom towards those who are, who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. Um, this is speaking of a life of a witness, that we should be authentic people, um, I like the speech here where he says, let your speech always be with grace. Grace is, as you guys know, an undeserved favor, as, as God has grace on us, it's undeserved favor, and we should be looking at people, and he's specifically talking about people outside the church, uh, people that are unsaved, um, to have undeserved favor on them, and that our speech be seasoned with salt. Um, we see this analogy in the Bible about salt, and of course, if you just throw salt in your mouth, it's not very tasty, uh, but it brings out the flavor, right? And, and it speaks of the Christian walk we have. We're all individual people. We all bring something. We, we all have individual testimonies. When we speak to people, we, we shouldn't be, um, I don't think, and maybe this is an opinion, but I don't think we should be uh, scripted or, um, you know, uh, about our faith and, and how to follow Christ, but we should be authentic of who we are, what God has done for us specifically. I think people are brought into our lives by God specifically so that we can witness to them uh, because our testimony may impact them personally, right? We're, we're all not Billy Graham. We're all not going to be able to come up and share a message and thousands of people are going to come forward and give their life to the Lord. Uh, but God has specific purpose for us um, as Paul says here, redeeming the time, and he brings us into specific situations where our life and our experiences and our, who we are authentically um, will impact those people, I believe. And so we need to remember that when we live out our public life as well as our, our prayer life, as Paul is talking about. Um, all right, so we're going to... Uh, the, the last section, as we go through verses 7 through 18 to close out the chapter, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a different approach here where, um, I, well, I say this, I have never done this before, but the way I decided to go about this, because we're going to get a list of names and people that are around Paul, and what I think of this is, is Paul's ministry team, you know, and throughout Paul's life, we have different people were introduced to that just kind of pop into the scriptures and then we don't hear about them again. Um, but at this specific point of time when he's at the, the prison in Rome, this is the ministry team that's surrounding him. And so what I want to do is kind of take a look at each one of these individuals that are brought up and see what the scripture says about them. Um, some uh, more than others, right? And that's just some, some people we just don't know much about. Um, and I think this is important because we all know, you know, the, the ministry of Paul or Peter. We can look at the sermons they taught, uh, things they did. But there's what we see is Paul wasn't a missionary in the sense that he was a lone ranger doing all these amazing things for the Lord and nobody was around him. That wasn't the case at all. Every time, you know, we're introduced, it seems like we're introduced to people all the time that were his traveling companions that were uh, with him doing ministry, and yet they're not, um, you know, they're not the, the, the face of the ministry like Paul was, but they are very, very important to the ministry. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I may need to skip ahead, so warning you guys in the, and there you go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 we read about the, the body of Christ, and so I want to read these verses, and then we'll look through the Paul's ministry team here. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. 
If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, am I not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And uh, thankfully, all these people weren't Paul trying to do their own ministry and do their own thing. And uh, where would we be today if they were all Paul, right? We, wouldn't, we would never have the letters because Paul didn't deliver letters, right? So we'd be in trouble. So um, let's go through, and we're going to start in verse uh, 7. And we were introduced to Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. Now, Tychicus, um, uh, let me read verse 8 because it's kind of important. I am sending him to you for this purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And so Tychicus was, we, we see in the scripture that he was described as a faithful servant and brother. Um, He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. He delivered this letter that we're reading today all the way from Rome, and, you know, that's in Europe, obviously, all the way to the churches in Asia, and so a considerable amount of distance. Um, He also delivered uh, Ephesians, for sure he delivered Ephesians, uh, Philemon, and maybe even Philippians to those uh, churches there. So he was uh, responsible for carrying the letter, carrying the mail. But um, obviously, this would have taken somebody that was, um, you know, this is very important. You know, if you're carrying a, a check for somebody, that's important. But this is very, very important. This is the word of God. And so Paul thought of Tychicus of such, uh, so highly that he, that he would entrust him with the word of God to send to the churches. And um, the other thing that we learn about it uh, for in Tychicus, Tych- boy, that's hard to say. I don't know if that name's going to make a comeback, though, you know, for, for the kids, I doubt it, because it's, it's tough to say. Um, in Ephesians, he's described as, he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And he's, here he's described as an encourager. Um, we also see that Paul had sent him to, uh, at one point in time, he sent him to Titus, because he wanted Titus to come and spend time with Paul. And, um, and so he sent him to the church there in Crete to be an interim pastor, right, to fill in, in into that role. He also did the same thing with Timothy in Ephesus. Um, during Paul's second imprisonment, uh, Paul sends Tychicus to uh, Timothy, uh, to the church in Ephesus, so that uh, Timothy can spend time with Paul right before uh, he ends up dying. And um, Paul placed, uh, obviously, great confidence in him. I think of him as kind of a utility player in the ministry. <laughs> he, you know, he could, he could probably teach. He could probably lead a group of people. He could navigate long distances, apparently. Um, and he was seen as faithful and following through with whatever, whatever task Paul gave him. And uh, so very important. I don't think Tychicus ever realized probably how important his ministry was, because we wouldn't be reading this uh, today if he, if he dropped the ball, right? If he decided, I need some fire starter while he's on his way, right? And he decided to burn the letter. So uh, we're very thankful for him and his ministry. Uh, verse uh, 9, we read uh, that Tychicus, he's sent to the, the church in Colossae, and he's sent with a person called, verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He was, he was from that area, from Colossae. He's one of you that will make known to you all the things which are happening here. Onesimus is a pretty interesting story because he was a, he was a slave. And uh, we learn this in the book of Philemon. There's a lot more written about him. Philemon, by the way, is only, I don't know, 20-something verses. 
It's a one chapter. It'll take you two minutes to read the whole thing, but it's a letter to Philemon. Philemon was Onesimus's slave master, okay? Onesimus, a runaway slave. It appears he stole stuff as well from Philemon to make this journey to Rome. Um, both Onesimus and Philemon have Paul to thank for their salvation. Uh, we, we read about that in Philemon that, um, that basically his very soul, Philemon's soul, is, is owed to Paul because he was faithful in the ministry. And Onesimus somehow or another came in contact with Paul in Rome. We don't know how, but Paul says he became the father of him in the faith. And Onesimus gave his life to the Lord as a runaway slave in Rome. And um, Paul was able to minister to him. And when he sent him back in the, in the book of Philemon, he says he's sending his very heart. Like it's, he has this close tie with Onesimus, and he really didn't want to send him back, it seems like. But he realized that he needed to make right, things right with Philemon uh, because he stole things from him, and he ran away, and he needed to send him back. Now, just as context, during the, this particular time of the first century believers in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that one-third of the people in Rome were slaves. And so uh, it, was, it was very common <laughs> to run into slaves in Rome. And um, one of the appeals Paul's makes, in, and I'll read this to you, Philemon uh, verse 10 I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And Paul writes this letter to Philemon for the main purpose of two things. One is he wants their uh, relationship to be uh, mended, but also that he wants Onesimus to be freed. He wants all of his debts to be forgiven by Philemon. And so he writes this letter to him And he says in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, and he says, I will repay it. Basically, whatever he owes you, whatever debt he has, whatever he stole, you could put that to my account. And he says, to say, and I like how he kind of adds this, to say nothing of your owing me your very self. So uh, Paul says, whatever that's worth to you, you know, your soul and eternity and all that, you know, you owe that to me. So whatever that's worth to you. but, but he's going to make it right, whatever, right? And so he writes this letter to um, Philemon. Now, somebody asked me once about, about uh, slavery. Why didn't Jesus, being in the Roman Empire, deal with slavery uh, directly, right? Why didn't he address it directly? And uh, I think this story with Onesimus and Philemon really shares what Jesus was aiming at, which was the heart of man, right? If, there's many problems in the Roman Empire, <laughs> many uh, laws probably that were ungodly, many things that were wrong, but you can change all the laws and you're not addressing the heart of man. And the gospel is what changes people, both for Philemon, the master in this case, and for Onesimus, the slave in this case, uh, were both saved by grace through faith, given their life to the Lord, and now they can be reunited as brothers and equal, not only equal in God's eyes, but equal on earth. I mean, that's the, the appeal Paul was making. And um, Jesus knew this, that uh, the laws of man are messed up. I mean, you can look at the laws in our land. We got all, all kinds of crazy laws. Uh, we slaughter babies by the thousands, right? I mean, we have awful laws in our lands. Um, just like the Romans did. But uh, what God did, what Jesus did through his ministry, ultimately did abolish slavery throughout the West, right? Through the work of Christians uh, who had the change in heart to abolish slavery. Um, And we see that the result of that is the change into the heart, and uh, the result is those two brothers um, being reunited as equals. All right, so we'll continue on in verse 10. And kind of another thing on that point, if God would have brought up all kinds of social issues with the Roman Empire and all the issues they had, would that have been the, the focus of the ministry? Would people even care about the gospel? 
The real thing that saves people for eternity, would people even care about that if all he was focused on was the social issues, right? And I, I don't think so. I mean, you would have maybe raised up a bunch of militants to go after certain laws and certain rules, but, um, but what good would it have done them for eternity? Um, so anyways, back to uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. We read, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he, become, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so we get two, uh, two people in this verse. Aristarchus the first, he was a, a Thessalonian. We don't get a lot in scripture about them. We, we get uh, one kind of interesting account where Aristarchus, the toughest one for me, sorry. Aristarchus was a traveling companion to Paul. He, um, he in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is teaching about, uh, about Jesus being the only God, and there's Gentiles around, and of course, they're polytheistic, and so they believe in many gods, and uh, there's a very lucrative business in Ephesians where uh, they produce idols, right? They make idols, and they start to realize this is going to be bad for business if people believe there's only one God. I mean, how many? We make idols, right? And so this starts an uproar in Ephesus, and um, there's a the mob of people that I think they're after Paul, but they end up grabbing um, our, 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 oh my goodness, <laughs> Aristarchus and uh, Gaius, and they end up dragging them into the theater. And uh, Paul wants to talk to the, to the angry mob and uh, reason with them, but the believers uh, convince him otherwise. And so they're kind of got these two guys hostage, <laughs> you know, because they know they're, they're, they're traveling companions with Paul. And uh, so, so he kind of gets kind of gets wrapped up into this group, and, and thankfully, the, oh, it says the city clerk were, was able to negotiate their release, uh, but the, the, these guys got put into a bad situation just being around Paul, uh, but that's, that's what would happen in Paul's life, right? He was, he was known to uh, uh, stir, up, stir up some crowds. So, and then we read about Mark here. Mark's probably a little bit more well-known. Uh, John Mark, the Bible says, uh, he's First, officially mentioned, and I say officially because I think he's in the scripture before then, but officially mentioned as the uh, son of a woman named Mary in Acts chapter 12, um, whose house is a uh, common meeting place for the believers to gather and pray. And um, one of the more famous stories doesn't totally, I mean, it kind of has to do with Mark, but... um, is, is around Paul and Barnabas who have a disagreement over Mark. So during Paul's first missionary journey, Mark is with them and uh, he, he deserts them. I mean, that's what the Bible says. He, he, it's too much for him, the, the mission field, and uh, he, he bails. And um, Barnabas um, and Paul, when they're about to take off for the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, look, we, we should take John Mark with us. And Paul says, um, no, no way. He's, he's a deserter. He's going he's gonna to bail on us. Right when we need him, he's going to leave us. And the Bible says that they had a, uh, a very sharp disagreement. Um, Luke, who, who writes this in Acts, doesn't really take sides one way or another. He just kind of tells the facts. Uh, but Paul didn't want to, you know, didn't want to have a quitter around where Barnabas believed in second chances, you know, that, uh, hey, you know, yeah, he screwed up, but but he, he wants to go with us, and he's ready this time. And uh, they ended up splitting ways. Um, Paul took Silas, and they went on, a, on the, his second missionary journey, and, and Barnabas took Mark with him, and they went separate ways after that point. But here we find in Colossians that they're reunited. At least Mark and, and Paul are reunited, and they're doing ministry together, and he's part of the ministry team with Paul. So somehow that relationship got reconciled. Um, there's some other kind of interesting things about Mark. As you guys know, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, or as you probably know, the Gospel of Mark is attributed to him. It's probably uh, Peter's account, uh, but, but Mark being the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Um, there's, when you read through the Gospels, 
What, one thing I like to do, if you read through all four Gospels and you read like the same account, you get some interesting little details because they come from different perspectives. Um, one of them uh, that I like, it was, you know, when, when I look at, consider the Gospel of Mark, he, when he's, keep in mind that he's taking Peter's account more than likely, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, um, let, let me ask you guys this question. I think I was talking to Oh, no, Amy showed me a video yesterday, and this was in there. So let me ask you this question. Who was it that cut off the uh, servant of the Sanhedrin's ear in the garden? You could say it. Peter. Peter. Yeah, everybody knows. It was Peter. Um, we wouldn't know that unless it was for the Gospel of John. Okay, the Gospel of Mark, when you read the account in the Gospel of Mark, keep in mind that Peter's probably around when this is being written, we don't even know it's a follower of Jesus. It's like just some unidentified person. It's, it, I think it says something like the, uh, th- there was a man there who uh, took out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the Sanhedrin. And it, it's like, where did this, what's going on? Like, was some guy roaming through the garden? You know, what's going on here? And um, so we don't even know that. Now, when we read Matthew and Luke, we do see that it's a follower of, of Jesus, but we don't get the identity. And then when we get to John, it's like, it was totally Peter. He totally did it. <laughs> you know, he just rats out his friend. And um, now, to be fair to John, every, pretty much everybody believes John was written after Peter died. The other three Gospels were m- most likely written before Peter died. And this would have been very incriminating evidence to write this uh, in, the, in, a, in the scriptures to distribute out to thousands of people. And so they probably intentionally left his name anonymous. And then after he died, John's like, <laughs> it was Peter. <laughs> he did it. Um, so we get this little, little thing. Now, the other thing that I find interesting in Mark's gospel, and this is why I say Mark is in the scripture before um, Acts chapter 12. There's an interesting story in the garden that is, seems very out of place. And um, we only read about it in Mark's gospel. And it kind of cuts in and cuts out. And then we're back to really what the narrative is about, which is about Jesus being arrested. But it talks about this uh, young man who's a follower of Christ. And he, um, when the mob comes to get Jesus, there's a few men that come and grab this young man. They have a, a scuffle of some sort. And somehow he got uh, detached from his clothes during the scuffle. And it says he fled naked, <laughs> this person, this young man. I believe is Mark. Uh, and he flees naked, and uh, that's all we get. And then it's back to the narrative we know. And um, it's not in any of the other Gospels. Mark's probably the only one that knows of this account, <laughs> or the young man, at least, that was, you know, if it's not Mark, knows of this account. And it makes sense that this young man wouldn't have reunited with his, uh, the, the fellow followers somewhere else. They probably went home uh, to get some clothes. And um, it, it also makes sense that he would have left his name anonymous, <laughs> you know. And so the scriptures just say that it's this young man in the garden. And so many people believe, including myself, that that was, that was Mark that was there. Now, at the end of Paul's race or the end of his, uh, his time with us here, he was imprisoned again in Rome. And in 2 Timothy, we read, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. And uh, we can see all, really a fully restored relationship here. And when someone's about to go to their death, um, they, they don't ask for anybody. <laughs> you know, this is, Mark was very, very uh, precious to Paul. And, um, and we see that relationship restored with Mark and Paul. Um, all right, so let's go back. Uh, we're making our way through. We're almost there. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And of this particular man, Jesus, common name at the time, uh, a.k.a. Justice, we don't really know much about him. Uh, he was... Uh, considered one of the four men, so that basically the four people we just read about, they were Jews of the circumcision. And there's going to be some additional names who were Greeks. They were not Jews. 
uh, that we're going to read about. And so he was a Jew. Uh, he is numbered among uh, the precious um, uh, of those that were there that were comforters to Paul in Rome. And that's about all we know about, know about him from scriptures. And so it just shows us the ministry team is made up of all kinds of different people. Uh, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And Epaphras is uh, more than likely the one who planted the church uh, in Colossae, the church planner there. And he travels to Rome uh, informing Paul about the condition of the church and much of what we've gone through the past few weeks, some of the struggles they had, uh, this more than likely came from Epaphras who came to Paul to get direction from him, to get this letter, essentially. And so he is seen as probably the, the, the senior pastor there, the uh, church planner, um, and is with him there in Rome as he's writing this letter. Uh, verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has great zeal for, for you, speaking of Epaphras, and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. And these are nearby cities in Asia Minor um, that are near Colossae. And uh, that, what, a, what a great heart. And I see this as a, you know, we don't know a lot about him except that he more than likely planted the church and that he really loved this church there. They had a great zeal for them. Uh, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And so we get two more uh, that are part of the ministry team here. Luke, we're probably very familiar with the name. Um, reality, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Luke himself, except for these little tidbits we get here. Uh, he was a physician, uh, which, you know, traveled with Paul quite a bit, and it was probably important for Paul to have a physician because he tended to run into stones and rocks a lot somehow. Um, and so having a physician was probably very handy. Um, we know from, you know, I'm not an expert in Greek, but uh, those that are say that uh, his, Luke's vocabulary, and Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, his vocabulary and his extensive and rich use of the Greek language put him at scholarly levels at the time. So he was well-educated, a physician, a historian, somebody who had a, a great grasp of classical Greek language. Um, we also learned from this letter here specifically that he wasn't a Jew. Uh, the Jews were grouped together in the, the first four, and Luke is separated. And so we know from, from reading this that he was a Greek, right, not a Jew. And, um, and he, uh, I think Hannah was talking to me about this, that uh, he wrote out of all the authors in the New Testament, as far as volume goes, he wrote more than anyone else, even Paul, right? So the book of Luke and the book of Acts account for more than any other author in the New Testament, and he was not a Jew, which is pretty incredible. Um, besides that, we don't know a lot. We see a lot of uh, him with Paul on these journeys. He spends a lot of time with Paul. And um, the, the next person we read about is Demas, uh, Demas is, is interesting here. We, we, uh, one of the other letters, um, he's described as a fellow laborer. Here in Colossae, he is given a brief mention that he is there with him. And the last time we read about Demas, unfortunately, uh, is in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to be uh, gone to Thessalonica. And um, it just shows you the life of Demas seemed to start off well, but it's like the, the seed on rocky soil, right? And uh, the, the cares of this world or the worries of this life or the wealth of the world uh, choked out the word and made him unfruitful. Uh, he started out being a laborer, and then it was just a, a short mention that he was there with Paul. And then uh, with the last we hear about him in scriptures is that uh, he, he left the ministry uh, because he was in love with the present world. And um, it's, it's, heart, it's probably heartbreaking for Paul, I'm sure, when he wrote that to letter to Timothy. It's, heart, 
Many of us have been around church for a while and done ministry with people, and, and when they leave for the world, it's heart, heartbreaking for us as well. And uh, that's the story of Demas is, not, you know, kind of this slow progression away and uh, ultimately uh, just living for the world. Uh, verse 15, we read, uh, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Uh, verse 15, we read about Nymphus. Uh, Nymphus, in, in this particular translation I have, New King James says his house. Some translations say her house. I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> You know, there's many women in the in the uh, early church in the first century church that had uh, significant roles in the ministry. And Nymphus may have been a, a man or a woman. There's some controversy about that, but it doesn't really matter. Um, verse 16, and by the way, that's all I have on on Nymphus, except that uh, his or her house was uh, the church home of the Church of Laodicea. Verse 16, um, and the uh, worship team can come on up as we. Close out the the chapter here. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also to the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, listen to this, and this is the last name we're introduced to here, Archippus. Uh, It's a good word for us. Archippus was more than likely the son of Philemon. In the letter to Philemon, he also greets Archippus, which would make sense because he probably lived in Philemon's house. And so it's more than likely his son. He says, And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Whatever unique way God made Archippus, he had a particular ministry, and he says, take heed to that. Hold on to that, that you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And that's a great word for, for us this morning. Verse 18, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. All right, we'll close with the song and then I'll come up and pray.